Hello, and welcome to the IQT Podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special BNEC series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a vice president at BNEXT, which is a biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. Uh, today, you're in for a treat. Uh, I have two guests on the podcast with me, Ryan Lewis and Dr. Nathan Wolf. Now, Ryan happens to be one of my favorite people at IQT. Um, Ryan is a, a senior vice president in IQT Labs and has run the wildly successful group called Cosmic Works for the past several years. This has been a group that has done amazing work exploring what can and cannot be done with artificial intelligence and satellite imagery. But I'll let Ryan describe um, Cosmic in, in more detail. Um, Ryan, thanks for joining the, the, the podcast. Well, first, Dylan, uh, thank you for the invitation to join. Uh, it is exciting for me to be a guest on a podcast as opposed to uh, the host uh, for a change. And yeah. as uh, Master Yoda once said, there can only be two, a master and an apprentice. And I believe <laughs> I am now in the apprentice role. Uh, so thank you for having me on the show. And for all the listeners out there, as Dylan mentioned, uh, I run a applied research group at NQTEL called Cosmic, and we uh, focus on the intersection of uh, computer vision technologies and geospatial applications. Uh, one of those applications that we have focused on is how you can look at imagery to make uh, predictions about what is happening in the world. And I think the topic that we're talking about today certainly extends beyond uh, geospatial data sets, but uh, it is one that is both particularly interesting from a data analytics perspective. So excited to be a part of the conversation. So um, Ryan and I recently were talking, um, and he mentioned a fascinating article that he had been reading in Wired. Uh, the article was entitled, We Can Protect the Economy from Pandemics. Why Didn't We? Ryan said uh, to me, that wouldn't it be cool for us to have this guy on a podcast? And I said, I think we can make that happen. You know, turns out I knew this guy that was mentioned in the article quite well. It happens to be Dr. Nathan Wolf. Nathan and I have been colleagues since the early 2000s as we bumped into each other in academia and, and other incarnations of our, of our uh, respective careers. But, you know, Nathan is this interesting character. He spent his youth, um, kind of almost ill-spent youth, running around West Africa chasing viruses to see if he could figure out how frequently they jump from animals to humans. And it turns out it's a lot. And it's the source of the majority of infectious diseases in humans. And this became something of a passion for Nathan to see how to understand and potentially stop what are these zoonotic jumps from animals to humans from becoming pandemics. 
Uh, he's been successful um, academically. He's been published extensively. He's pulled down uh, tens of millions of dollars in academic grants over the years. And finally, he started, uh, uh, he founded a startup called Metabiota. And incidentally, we spoke with Nita Madev, the, CEO, the current CEO of, of Metabiota already in a podcast. And if you're interested in learning more specifically about Metabiota, please check that podcast out. It'll be in the, in the links for this one. Um, and, and so, also, you know, Nathan is an author of a book called The Viral Storm, The Dawn of a New Pandemic Age. Definitely a provocative impression title for a book given COVID-19 and what's happening right now. And now writing a book is an accomplishment in and of itself, no doubt about it. But to be honest, I'm more impressed that because of this book, Nathan got to be on the Stephen Colbert rapport back in the day when the Stephen Colbert was uh, before he had moved to CBS. Personally, me being a huge Stephen Colbert fan, that put it into a whole different realm. And, it can, you know, I was exceedingly jealous about that. But uh, Nathan, thank you for taking the time to talk with us. We really appreciate you being on the podcast with us. Uh, Dylan, Ryan, what a great pleasure. Um, and the Stephen Colbert report, was obviously a great deal of fun, but it was pretty nerve wracking as well. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, um, you know, what seemed to it be fun is we talk in more depth with Nathan about this topic, about the article. And so here we are. And Nathan, don't worry, we can try to make uh, this as nerve wracking as possible. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Answer the question, Senator. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't recall. <laughs> <laughs> Nathan, as, as Dylan was saying, you know, you had sort of a, a really interesting path that, that brings us to today's discussion. And like a lot of things, I think it's always useful to kind of go back and, and realize how we got to this point and how we're discussing the, the topic that we're on today. And why, why don't you take us back to, you know, before the book, right, before Metabiota and, you know, how you found yourself kind of uh really becoming a in as as some have said a, a almost an Indiana Jones like virus hunter like a how, how did you get there and then explain kind of how that led to uh uh your your current position it it was a somewhat circuitous route so i was a doctoral student uh in primatology actually so i was working in uganda and studying uh, wild chimpanzee populations. And among the things that I was quite interested in was uh, a hypothesis, which has become, you know, really a set of substantive science at this stage on what they were referring to as self-medicating behavior. And this was the idea that chimpanzees would sometimes seek out particular plants and rather than, you know, eat them normally, they would swallow them or consume them in patterns and in ways that suggested that they um, were actually medicating themselves uh, against potentially uh, microbes. And I had a very, uh, you know, excellent mentor at the time, Richard Rangham, who is um, who's a professor of primatology and one of the people that really was at the forefront of wild chimpanzee studies. And he said, look, if you're going to ever say something convincing about this, you're going to need to understand the underlying epidemiology of the viruses in these animals. And Frankly, from my perspective, it was just a bit of good luck because as I started to think about the viruses of chimpanzees and gorillas and the other broader microorganisms, it brought me into uh, the world of microbiology and of the origins of human disease 
And it was such a sort of breathtaking amount of unknown living diversity. It seemed as a young scientist, a great area to study because there was so little that was known. In some ways, it was almost the opposite of studying wild chimpanzees, which was so um, challenging and so many hypotheses had been explored and the, you know, to move to viruses where you could find new ones. Um, and frankly, I never looked back. I pivoted over to doing my my doctoral work in, in virology and epidemiology. Um, but that was really the origins of it. And so I started off really being a, a field oriented virologist uh, and have, you know, continued for the first half of my career to, to work with wild ape populations, which I think, as you know, have become, you know, very, very important and interesting in terms of, number one, being the the origin point for important human pandemics like HIV, being deeply related to the origins of other human microorganisms like malaria. Um, They represent, you know, fascinating sentinels to their, you know, their natural surroundings. And so as a consequence, they're you know, they're hunting a whole range of different primates and other organisms, obviously without cooking, which means that they accumulate pathogens, which are potentially of interest to humans. Um, and from there, it became, you know, broader, not just to sort of apes, but to the origins and emergence of human disease. And then I had this great opportunity to work with uh, Don Burke, uh, who then went on to become the the dean of the University of Pittsburgh School of Health, among many other accomplishments. And he gave me this incredible opportunity, along with uh, my Cameroonian colleagues, Aital uh, and Pudi and Gole, to help start a site as part of my postdoctoral work in Cameroon. And the objective there was to really see if we couldn't view the ongoing transmission of viruses from animals to humans. And particularly at the time, we were very interested in retroviruses. So it had been well known that, um, you know, HIV was a virus of wild primate populations and HIV-1 in particular of wild ape populations. You know, could we look to individuals who were exposed to wild ape populations and other primates and actually see the cross-species transmission of retroviruses um, and then we were we were successful in doing that. We were able to document the first sort of uh, natural transmission, quote, natural transmission of retroviruses um, that was really viewed in real time uh, in this case of these simian foamy viruses. Um, and then to make a long story short, the interest continued to sort of evolve and broaden and it became much more about setting up broader predictive, preventative surveillance systems. And then I was, um, you know, again, had had just the, the good fortune to be around when um, USAID predict uh, was really just beginning and was, you know, along with Wildlife Conservation Society and UC Davis and EcoHealth Alliance was able to be one of the founding um, kind of recipient um, participants in the PREDICT project, which took it to a different level, which really said, look, we can we can go around the world and we can try to set up listening posts and we can do capacity development and develop methodologies for documenting the viruses that are out there that have the potential to jump into human populations. And that actually now has the potential to go on 
and become the, the Global Virome Project, which is proposed as an effort to identify the vast majority of animal viruses that could go on to become human pandemics. And that's sort of the outgrowth of PREDICT. And then I would say somewhere around 10 years ago, um, I really started to become fascinated, not just with the morbidity and mortality consequences, but the livelihood consequences. Um, you know, having seen SARS and recognized this, it seemed to me that there had been a relative neglect of this area um, of what are the economic consequences of viral pandemics and how could we potentially understand and try to mitigate those. Um, and then, you know, being familiar and having done uh, uh, epidemic modeling myself, I was fortunate to team up with, you know, great people like Nina Madov, who had really specialized and spent her career doing this kind of modeling. Um, and to, and of course, the modeling is of interest beyond um, economic preparedness, but that was an area that, again, we just felt was a was a hole and a weakness. Um, and so we, you know, we did that work along with, you know, and it was it was wonderful. Throughout my career, I've had the chance to explore new domains, and I would have never imagined when I was you know, studying wild chimpanzees in Uganda that I would end up being fascinated by visiting a 150-year-old reinsurance company. Um, but what I found is that, you know, at the – look, I had the same preconceptions about insurance as, as everyone does. Most of my interface with insurance was, I don't know, auto insurance or life insurance. And what I found was that when it comes to catastrophic risk, there is a complete silo of brilliant independent thinkers that are largely separate from the kind of health thinkers or other catastrophists, if you will. Um, but there are PhDs in math sitting around the table at these, you know, high end insurance companies thinking about pandemics. And they frankly reached out to us and that led to this, you know, very meaningful collaboration, which was unexpected in some ways, but led to us really thinking about mitigation of the livelihood slash economic impacts of pandemics, which, of course, in the age of post-COVID world, there's there's really no reason to even kind of emphasize how important that is, although that was something that I spent much of the last three to four years yeah. trying to convince people of. Well, I think what, what's particularly interesting, too, is it's rare when a, a personal experience aligns uh, almost completely with the development of a whole new field of study and industry. And, and so I, just listening to your story is, is really exciting because in so many ways it, it, it couldn't be timed better. And, you know, just going back to your... Uh, I'm a bit of a Forrest Gump of, uh, <laughs> you know, like viral origin then global surveillance and then economic stuff. I've just been sort of at the right place and at the right time to see the groups of people and sometimes participate in the foundation of kind of effectively new fields. So, yeah, I do feel just so fortunate. Well, and, and do you like Dr. Pepper like Forrest Gump did? Because if so, that completes. That completes <laughs> um, I will take it. I will. I will own it. You know, sometimes stumbling into being in the right place at the right time is uh is just the ticket but and 
You know, I think one of the things that really jumped out at me in just listening, you know, to your story is, you know, before, uh, before Metabiota and when you were working on the, the USAID predict problem, you know, to me, as someone as a layman looking at, at this particular, uh, field, the concept of developing a real time sort of prediction, uh, system for pandemic risk is it, just, it's really hard, uh, to wrap, uh, it was just really hard to wrap my mind around in some ways just because, um, you know, as a, as a big fan of, uh, Talib's Black Swan, uh, book, which was a, a book about really outlining the impact, uh, or the unintended impacts of, uh, unpredictable events. You know, in some ways, I, I at least initially thought of almost like these uh, extreme pandemic risks, risk as uh, almost like an extreme outlier event, which follows like a, a non-Gaussian distribution, i.e. it's almost almost impossible to predict. And yet, listening to you talk and the, and the more I've learned about your work, it's that's actually not the case. And uh, I, in a lot of ways, I, I, I'm still just amazed by that, that our ability to, to pinpoint uh, the point of risk uh, for these types of events. Um, I, I just find that very interesting that we can, that you have the ability to do that in, in set cases. Yeah. And I think it's, for me, it's really helpful. And I increasingly kind of think of it more in the context of sort of preparedness because people, when they think of prediction, they do think of sort of, I don't know, near term forecasting of a hurricane, something along those lines. Whereas, um, and, I, and I would say working with the insurance industry has been very helpful in this sense because they have to uh, address a whole range of phenomena whose future probability distribution is effectively unknown, but they need to make choices based on that. And so as a consequence, they start off with modeling approaches and they try to think about what we know about historical events and they start building. And what you find, and it's quite remarkable, is that these systems you know, really go from what sounds like pretty wild guesses to begin with to much more sophisticated tools for assessing the particular risks of different entities, right? Because different cities, different countries, different agencies, different corporations or small businesses all have particular risk kind of fingerprints, if you will, that are distinct from one another. But um, understanding those distinctions can help to facilitate a rational mitigation strategy. And I think this works across a very wide, you know, wide class of risks. Um, and there's some. Yeah, please. Yeah. And, and it's been really interesting, though, too, it's like because you had mentioned, you know, your Prior to, you know, 10 years ago, your, your main interaction with the insurance industry was with, you know, your car or for home or for fire or things like that. And where it's, you know, there's, there's a good body of empirical data out there in terms of the frequency and impact of those events. And so you can just look at the data and do basic actuarial kind of statistical analysis of those empirical data. Whereas as, as uh, Ryan was pointing out, you know, for much more rare events like uh, natural disasters or pandemics, you know, you need to augment those empirical data with fairly sophisticated models to get a better distribution of what that frequency and impact looks like. So you can actually do those risk analytics. But, um, you know, there's been a broad, you know, expansion of, of, um, effort in that, in that space of risk analytics to, to improve those capabilities. And that's what Metabiota has been kind of at the forefront of doing. 
I was just going to say, you know, and I'm sure referring to Nita's podcast is is the right right one there. But it's yeah. And then sometimes you uh, just to build on that, you know, as you know, Dylan, is sometimes you combine. Right. You have your historical event catalog and then you have your modeling catalog. And sometimes you you need to do extrapolations from regional historical events to see the different ways they might have been as 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 substantive pandemic events. But just to drill this down, because I think that one way that helped me to think of, um, you know, think of ways of, of attempting to have quantitatively oriented um, preventative measures against these, these, you know, fairly rare and substantive events was a very specific case study. And this was something that was, we were approached to do pretty early in our relationship with Munich Re. And they had this fascinating problem that, that reinsurance uh, companies have, which is, they have to address the possibility of what they call a mortality shock event. So as a reinsurance company, reinsurance companies uh, insure primary insurers. So all these primary insurers that are putting out life insurance, they say, well, we don't know how to deal with really unusual events that would kill a lot of people and make us go bankrupt. So we'll go to the reinsurers. And that's their job is to come up with reinsurance. And they have that for life insurance. And as you know, life insurance, there's no exclusions, right? So it's not like there's an exclusion for a particular peril. And they came to us and they, you know, and we worked together to develop particular models to understand their risk associated with particular events. And here's one of the most fascinating things about it was they found what they call a counterparty. So effectively a way for them to balance their risk books. And this was one example of it was a pension fund. I find this to be so deep and so important because these pension funds, what happens to them is because they by and large pay out living individuals. If there's a mortality shock and a pension fund loses um, enough of its pensioners, then it suddenly is sitting on capital. Right now, this this is morbid sounding for some. And, you know, it's it's, you know, potentially a challenging topic to think through. But think of it this way. In a situation where you had a mortality shock event, you know, I don't know, call it an order of magnitude more mortality than COVID-19, something like that. You would be sitting in a circumstance where pension funds would have tremendous resources and where life insurers would have gone bankrupt and be requiring bailouts, in other words, taxpayer you know, funds. Whereas what happened in these transactions was that the, the life reinsurers paid the pension funds every year. And so when those events occur, um, that money is distributed effectively. And so effectively what happens is the private sector becomes like a wave breaker, becomes sort of a resilience mechanism that doesn't cost taxpayers anything, doesn't cost pensioners anything. I mean, there's obviously a tax on these transactions, but it it actually is a bit of what I almost think of as financial alchemy in the sense that it's like something coming from nothing. And, you know, mm-hmm. Ryan, just back to your point, right, you don't necessarily – it is a specific preparedness tool that requires some resolution of potential events, but you don't need to know anything about like have a specific forecasting vision in order to use that bit of sort of, if you will, predictive insight in order to create a resilience cushion. And that from my perspective is the model that I see as expanding well beyond life insurance to business interruption risk. 
Um, and we can get into some details of how the public-private partnerships can facilitate this. But just one more note on it, what I love about it in the context of other, you know, very valuable efforts I've been involved with is the beauty of the private sector approaches is that if you can get them up and running, if you can bootstrap them, they are self-sustaining without requiring outside investment. So it is one of these situations where we could, you know, potentially without massive foundation or government support, you know, get additional, um, you know, substantive resilience baked into global societies. And so that's one of the reasons that I just love it. And if you want, I'm happy to explore the public-private partnerships, which I think are a big topical current issue that are, that, you know, need to be addressed. Definitely. And I think um, what, what you're describing, a couple of things to unpack there, but what you're describing on the essentially a public marketplace uh, for defer, uh, deferring the cost or at least some of the cost of this type of risk is, is what really uh, motivated uh, me to ping Dylan um, after reading the article uh, simply because I, I've, I followed uh, more closely uh, what are called tail funds or black swan funds, not necessarily along the lines of just pandemics, but essentially funds that were created after the subprime mortgage crisis of 2007 and 8. And one of the big debates around some of those funds has been uh, essentially the, the opportunity cost, right, that is incumbent with investing in those funds. So case in point, something happens, they do very well, but uh, during uptimes, right, you miss, you have the opportunity cost of missing out on, on large returns in the, for example, in the retail market. I, I'm curious here, as you think about engaging with private sector entities, right, to, that are interested uh, in buying these types of policies, is there some sort of comparable opportunity cost with these types of businesses? I, I essentially think of i.e., when does a, a perhaps a pandemic risk policy uh, become too cost prohibitive uh, for companies to pursue uh, relative to some of their uh, investments? It, that's great, and I think I can I can um, it may be illustrative to talk about uh, terrorism. Um, so terrorism was a very interesting one, and I think this can also help to walk through sort of the public private partnership here. So after 9-11, there was this interesting circumstance where basically the development of high rises ground to a screeching halt. Um, And that is perhaps, you know, quite intuitive. But but here's specifically what happened and how the the issue got addressed. The investors in high rises said um, we simply cannot invest in the development of a new high rise unless there is terrorism insurance. And the developer said, well, there's no terrorism insurance available. And then through what I think is a very, very clever set of mechanisms um, in the United States, it was TRIA, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act in the UK. It was uh, pool re, for example, the U S government and other governments around the world basically said we will, um, guarantee effectively act like a reinsurer on this. We will say, go ahead, create a terrorism risk market. And if any single loss exceeds a certain amount, a certain number of hundred million or billion dollars, the U.S. government will step in and, and take that risk. And what happened very quickly, well, you know, certainly over the course of a couple of years is it went from a situation where insurers were, were basically saying, 
there is no way for us to protect against terrorism. These are this is too big of a loss. We just can't do it to a, you know, what is now a pretty sophisticated terrorism insurance market that increasingly does not have as much of a need for the federal backstop. I mean, there's a couple of questions you may ask, which is why does the U.S. government have to or any government have to provide any backstop? Well, essentially, as we saw in 9-11, as we see now in COVID, they're currently providing 100 percent of a backstop. So if the existence of a backstop encourages the private sector to take even five to 10 percent, you know, if, if you're talking about COVID, now that's like a trillion, multi-trillion dollar impact, right? So it's you can save, you can be tremendously efficient, you know, by doing that. And what I found is, you know, for the moment, the community, you know, is obviously very thoughtful about being risk on when it comes to epidemics, right? But, you know, there will be really smart people which will, who will recognize, number one, the probability of a one in, say, 50 year, 75 year event like COVID has not changed from before COVID to after COVID, right? So the notion that you didn't care about the risk before and now you care about it a hundred times represents an opportunity for someone who is thinking carefully, number one. Number two, and I think this is more of a, this is somewhat of a, of a hope, but I do think that as devastating as COVID-19 has and will be, it is also a once in a generation opportunity to stimulate mitigation and understanding of this class of risks. And I think I see epidemic risk. Knock on wood, brother. Knock on wood. Oh, I know. But think about cyber risk. Think about terror risk, right? Like, I think that if when I used to get up and say, hey, I think that your exposure to pandemics is greater than your exposure to cyber or terror, um, I would just be laughed at. Nobody would believe that. But if anyone argued that cyber or terror today is a greater risk to the future of companies than pandemics. I think, frankly, you know, the burden of proof is on those people rather than, you know, those of us who are focused on this risk class. So I do think that these the financial markets, that insurance markets, that the private sector is adaptable. Um, There's an interesting challenge, which is longevity, right? Like, Shareholders, for example, have a longer term, generally have a, a longer tenure than the executives who are making risk oriented decisions, right? And so there does need to be shareholder pressure to hold companies responsible. Um, and I do think this is a deep thing that we need to think about. Our financial systems really need to contemplate, which is how do you expect an executive who has an average tenure of like five to 10 years? And that's I think, frankly, quite generous. Usually it's even shorter. How do you expect them to make real substantive investments in risks that are, you know, 15, 20, 50 year events? And um, I certainly welcome efforts that move us in that way. And I follow like the long term stock exchange that, you know, that's one possible avenue. But I think it's something that's really worth thinking about. And I think the other thing to, I mean, to pile onto this as well is I think one of the challenges is actually being able to, um, quantify that risk for a particular sector of the, of the, um, of industries or for a particular country. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about it in, in terms of, um, you know, one in 75 or one in 50 year kinds of events and trying to understand how that could be. But to be quite honest, for some of these companies, they don't even have the risk analytics to be able to do that. And that's why one of the reasons why Metabiota has been so interesting. And, and it reminds me of, 
you know, maybe about six years ago, I was at a conference where Unilever was giving a presentation of um, how much how they were able to quantify on a yearly basis on how much they lost due to natural disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes and that sort of thing. They had an internal sort of metric for being able to actually quantify that risk. And then it put it into a framework of it's like, well, what are the ways of mitigating that risk and and thinking about other mechanisms of doing that? So that's why they, as a company, started to pressure some of the countries that they were, had major facilities in for doing more in climate change. <clears throat> um, and um, uh, so to, to to cut back on some of those things. And so so being able to quantify that risk is really critical in all of these kind of calculations as well. <clears throat> I, I think that's exactly right. And just to build on it, um, you know, as you all know, everybody's become an epidemiologist and there's, you know, a thousand COVID models. But I think <laughs> what is most exciting and unique about Metabiota is it spent, you know, many millions of dollars of private investment funds and spent, you know, five or six years developing models that aren't just about like where is COVID going, but more specifically, how do you as an entity, whether it's a company or an agency or a government or a city, what is your exposure to these risks writ large and how do you mitigate those risks? What are the most effective ways for you to address the particular risks you have? And it's still something that's the only set of tools that I'm familiar with capable of doing that and combining it with the sort of, you know, real-time modeling and data that you do see much more ubiquitously right now. The other thing I might point out that I think is of interest, you mentioned Unilever, um, and I do think, right, these, the longer term, but the the companies that have been in existence for long periods of time, right, Munich Re is a classic example, 150-year-old company, you know, you know, may have a slightly different Mm -hmm. time horizon. The other one interesting point to think about Unilever is, I believe they are among those companies that has been uh, quite successful associated with the pandemic, right? Because they sell things that people have been, you know, hoarding, frankly. And I do think that that's an important point to, to point out to Ryan's earlier point, which is if everybody loses, you have a very, very difficult time basically you know, equilibrating risk and transferring risk. But yep. that's really not the mm-hmm. case. There are, there is what's called risk appetite. And some of those may be family offices that are looking for long-term gains and want like non-correlated assets, some of which may be companies that what we've learned during this pandemic uh, actually provide critical services which, whose needs not only stay the same, but might actually go up during pandemic circumstances. And what this creates is the potential for a whole, whole range of financial tools that eventually I believe will protect individual portfolios. Just like you have, you know, you can have, I don't know, like a ETF of fill in the blank in your portfolio. Like you can invest in a cyber ETF, something like that. I believe that there will be ways in which we can have um, a whole range of financial mechanisms that will, you know, help on many different levels to provide different resilience. Um, and I think there's been this divide between epidemiologists and economists. Um, you know, it's like for epidemiologists, thinking about livelihoods is very fraught because somehow we feel like we're, we're, ha- we're, we're being forced to like come up with a value for human life. And now there's some great, the, um, Pareto methods and others to look at frontier effects. And there's a great 
great article um, from the NBER recently on this that I can give to you to for your folks to cite. But I think, you know, look, the, the broader point is we are making decisions that affect morbidity, mortality and people's livelihoods. And it is completely reasonable for us to think about all of them. And there's low hanging fruit for epidemiologists to apply their tools to mitigate livelihood loss because it's just been neglected relative to morbidity and mortality. Um, and, and that is definitely, you know, one thing that has driven my work over the last you know, three to five years. One of the things, though, that just really jumps out at me that is, is really compelling is the work you and, and Metabiota are doing, right, to drill down, as you were saying, to like industry specific levels or even company levels in terms of exposure. And uh, when you're thinking about uh, developing a market or creating a market, essentially, for these types of risk products, Right. It, it starts getting really interesting when you think about uh, the economic effects, uh, assuming those products grow on certain industries. So think um, and, I, and I know you've mentioned this before, like think about the impact on an industry like hospitality uh, or travel, like what we're seeing uh, right now with the airlines, their exposure to risk, given the fact that, you know, some of the best techniques we have today, right, are social distancing or quarantine. Obviously, their their exposure is much higher. So I almost I immediately start to wonder, uh, you know, what happens in those industries um, uh, as there is an effort to not only buy uh, this type of insurance, but it, in some cases it may even be mandated uh, in the future by by the government, uh, just given uh, the impact of any future event could have on their bottom line. I think we'll have to watch exactly what happens. I do think we will see parts of the world where there is regulation um, in order to mitigate, frankly, taxpayer impact from future events. Um, and I think there's going to also be a substantive private market, right? And I, again, I do think um, none of these other new risks are perfect perfectly analogous, not not to imply that pandemic is really sort of a new risk, at least, you know, over the past decades. But if you look at cyber, if you look at terrorism, you know, cyber is a great example. If you went back like 10 or 12 years, you had a circumstance where, you know, you would talk to, say, CEOs about cyber and, you know, they they, they were like, yes, this is a risk and I'm interested in, in it. But it, it was really a question of, like, did they have mitigation in place or did they not have mitigation in place? But if you look now at the major corporations around the world, it's not a question of if they have uh, efforts to insure against and mitigate against cyber risk. It's at what level? It's this level. It's that level. It's not that they have. You know, do they have generic analytics or do they have specific analytics? And I do think um, that will be the future for for epidemics as a risk class. That if I'm if I'm a CEO, that's just sort of like, well, you know, I guess this is just such a big risk. I think say the government's going to address it. I do not think that that is going to hold up to market scrutiny and shareholder scrutiny. Um, and you know, and I think that what our hope is from a business perspective, frankly, is to build the tools that will enable, you know, CEOs as well as the head of government agencies and multilaterals to be able to, 
you know, to say like, okay, this is not some generic risk. I'm not just going to buy like a, you know, preparedness plan and, you know, some data feed, but I'm going to actually try to explore the details of what is my supply chain? Where are my people located? What happens to consumption of my products during these during these kinds of events and where are my specific weaknesses and how do I address those? And it'll be through a combination of, you know, um, preparing for monitoring and, you know, buying insurance against these sorts of events. And I, I think mm-hmm. that will, you know, simply be a part of, you know, part of the future of the private world. Um, and then there's some fascinating, um, public sector mechanisms as well. Um, we've been doing this amazing work with the African Union, African Risk Capacity, and they have a sovereign level insurance for African nations that they've developed for flood and for drought. Um, and it's basically, um, and I think if you all are not familiar with it, you'll find it real interesting. So, And it sort of unites some of the earlier work I did with the recent work I'm, I'm doing, which is you work in countries that may have, you know, very limited discretionary funds to respond to outbreaks. And as you know, those tend to be some of the countries that are really the hotspots for the emergence of these kinds of epidemics. And you help them to develop contingency plans. You know, after X number of cases, we will do X, you know, sort of take the human out of the loop of that response. And you you set it up in such a way that says, and, you know, if you contribute something to this pool and the pool will probably be subsidized. And if you put into place the right contingency plans and you put into the right the right surveillance plans, when you see X number of cases, dollars will automatically flow in the form of sovereign insurance product into your contingency plan. So you don't have to debate. Is this the big one? Is this not the big one? Should I save my money? You know, is this going to be, a, you know, a small village Ebola outbreak or is this going to be an Ebola outbreak that goes on for eight months and affects the entire region and perhaps broader? Um, and so I really do believe that um, there is a there will be positive outcomes which will emerge from COVID-19. And I think that, um, you, you know, and I think it's. I think this is likely the beginning of a whole range of new approaches and new ways to create sort of financial vaccines and social inoculum and all these different sorts of features that will change the probability that outbreaks and regional events become pandemics in the future. Right. And will also make it for when they do occur, the impact is is less substantive. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's it. Yeah. From your lips to God's ears. Absolutely. So you, you've gone from a primatologist to a virologist to an actuary. And I think that we need to get you an honorary set of taped together glasses, uh, just to, to kind of as a, as representative of that trajectory. Um, but I'm sure my colleagues would question how, how much of an expert, you know, maybe a little bit of an expert in each, but (laughs) some, some consequence to continuing to move, but it makes for a fascinating career. And so, um, so, so Nathan, you know, it's like you've been doing a lot of things. I mean, you've covered a lot of ground in your career. I mean, what, what are you doing working on now? What's, what's happening next? Well, you know, as, as you know, I'm pretty busy with Metabiota for the moment, but I am, you know, I, I hope that my career will continue to evolve. And I'm thinking about, you know, a number of different areas. Um, but one one book that I'm reading that I think you would find 
particularly interesting and your audience would find particularly interesting um, is a book called The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity by um, a scientist, by a, an academic named Toby Ord, who's a very mathematically oriented philosopher at Oxford University. And I've just been kind of blown away by this book. And, and interestingly, among his major um, arguments is that natural pandemic risks don't fall into his category of sort of existential risks for humanity. Um, and but he puts forward an argument and a discussion, which I think is very, very useful for all of us and talks about a set of risks that we are investing so little in that I think at this moment where we've seen a massive risk that most people just didn't think about, probably because some of our, our innate biases was significant to think about a broader perspective. And his argument is, you know, when he calculates all these potentially existential risks that humanity faces, the global investment is less than we invest in ice cream each year. Um, and as part of his point is we should start with more than that. <laughs> But there's one beautiful argument that he makes that I, that I found very, very effective, which is um, space doesn't matter, right? If it's like a loved one or even a person we don't know, it doesn't matter, you know, whether they're, you know, 20 miles away from us or a thousand miles away from us, right? We still care for our children. We still would care about our children's well-being if they were on Mars. And he extrapolates this to an intergenerational perspective, right, which is that we somehow very naturally discount our responsibilities to future generations, which will hold mm -hmm. many, many more people than have ever existed prior to us. Um, and, and I just think it's a natural time for us to stop and think about, you know, um, what we've done as a human population, both the sort of more scary and dark sides of it, as well as some of the more exciting and beautiful parts of it, and how we can utilize some of the tools that we've developed to, you know, solve our day-to-day our -day problems, which are obviously paramount, but also think to the future about what are the, the more fundamental and existential risks we face. And I think he did just a wonderful job of talking through that. So I'm enjoying reading that book right now. It is really fun that you brought that up because it is actually on the pile of my books to read as well. I just actually picked it up recently, and it looks to be a wonderful read. So thanks for that recommendation. Really appreciate it. The um, So if people are interested in learning more about you um, or the company Metabiota, um, how would they go ahead uh, uh, and get a hold of you? Well, I would encourage people to check out um, – Metabiota's website. I mean, it's a it's a busy, fast moving startup company. So as a consequence, it, it's not always the most up to date, but there's some great videos that demonstrate the power of the analytics tools and platform that's been created by Metabiota. Um, and, you know, people can always I'm not very active on Twitter, but I um, if you look into my feed, I've posted on most of the um, the work that's been done recently on us. Um, and that's, uh, at, at virus hunter. But, um, yeah, I certainly, I'm available if people want to reach out via Metabiota. You know, it's our pleasure to interface with, um, you know, individuals or institutional corporate leaders and help talk them through some of the work that we do. Government, of course, has been, you know, really critical supporter and an important customer and consumer of our product for, for a number of years.
Nathan, always, it's it's an absolute pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. <laughs> great yeah. discussion. Thanks. Thanks for the great questions. Ryan, always wonderful to be with you as well. Hey, I'll come back anytime. This was great. <laughs> and thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Be safe, be healthy, be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on Be Next, visit www.bnext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care.